Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enrol the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Aroer, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jezer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatum Hodshai, and on to Dan Jan and around towards Sidon. Then they went towards the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come to you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over, and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand! The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arona looked and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arona said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arona said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. 
Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your Majesty, Arona, gives all this to the king. Arona also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Arona, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. morning. I hope all these people are not snapped up by uh, a company that enjoyed their reading so much. Um, the second reading is from 1 John chapter 1 reading from verse 8 to chapter 2 verse 2 and I'm sure it's very familiar to some of you. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Morning. If you are here, if you're online, welcome. Uh, I'm Langdon, uh, and we are going to look at the final conclusion to 2 Samuel. If you have, uh, a, a, uh, have been with us here at Fig Tree, for the last 10 weeks, we've been going through this long story uh, of 2 Samuel. Uh, if you haven't been with us, or you're new to the Bible, I welcome you to the final chapter of 2 Samuel. Um, I don't know if you've ever read a book and you've read that final chapter, and you come away and you read it and you're like, what did that have to do with anything? When you felt a bit unsatisfied, has anyone ever felt that? Or watching a movie or something and you get to the final bit, you're like, what? Um... Maybe you feel like that about this. Maybe you'll, at first glance, you're like, well, how's that an end to a story? That's weird. Uh, to, you know, two big books. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Because we're going to ask God. It's so important when we crack open God's word that uh, we ask him to speak to us uh, by his word. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you because we want to understand your word. Father, you reveal yourself to us through your word, and we want to know you more. 
so I pray, Lord, that I can be faithful to your word, and I pray for your spirit to just open it up to us uh, and uh, open it up to myself, Father, that we might be encouraged and strengthened as, as Tim prayed earlier for us. So we just lift this time up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you are following closely, uh, and we just appreciate all our Bible readers, but if you are following closely, um, when I read that passage, I have questions. Um, and I'll just give you an example. Even the first two verses, when I look at it closely, it makes me ask questions. Have a look at these first two verses. This is how it begins. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Job and the army commanders, Go to the tribes from, of Israel from Dan to Bathsheba, enroll the fighting men, so I might know how many there are. I have questions. Um, does anyone else have questions, or is it maybe it's just me? Here's my questions, and then see if you are on the same line. Firstly, why is the Lord angry with Israel? We don't know. We actually just, it doesn't tell us why the Lord is angry with Israel. So we start this chapter, we know that the Lord is angry with Israel, we're not told why. Um, 2 Samuel isn't necessarily chronological, so we don't know when this happened, but all we know is uh, the Lord is angry with Israel. Um, and then it says this really fascinating thing. It says, God incited David uh, against Israel. Does that make anyone ask a question? Why is God inciting the king against his own people? Makes again you ask, what have they done? And it makes you go, well, hold on. Uh, what, why would God incite uh, David against his own people, who's inciting here? Uh, is God inciting him? God wouldn't incite someone to do sin, would he? Uh, we know that, we know he wouldn't, because scripture tells us in James, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt. So it can't be God. And then if you're a Bible nerd like me from time to time, um, you look at this, sim we've got this similar passage in 1 Chronicles, a parallel passage, and it says uh, in two, 1 Chronicles 21, I haven't got it on the screen, but it says the same thing, it says, but different, it says Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So you've got one passage that says it's God, another passage says it's David, uh, it's Satan, Who's inciting Israel? What's going on? Questions. Was it God? But God wouldn't tempt. Was it Satan doing it? Was it, you know, a, a spiritual force of Satan? Some translations will say uh, Satan is another word for enemies. So it might have been another nation putting pressure or na a, a group of nations putting, uh, threatening David for him to take a census. We're really not sure if it's, if it's the devil, if it's Satan in some spiritual way. This is not out of his character. Uh, and we see also in Scripture that God will sometimes let Satan have a go at 
God's people. We saw it in Job. If you read the book of Job, uh, God lets Satan have a go at Job, this righteous guy, because God says, you know, I think he can handle it. But Job doesn't know why. We see Satan have a go at Paul uh, with his thorn in the flesh. We see Satan have a go at Jesus. Uh, God is still sovereign, but he lets Satan do his thing. Is this what's happening here? We just don't know. We just don't know. And then there's another question I have. What's the big problem with taking a census anyway? Is that a problem? Is that a sin? Because has anyone ever been involved with a census in Australia? I think we did one a year or two ago. Does that mean we shouldn't have been involved? Should we not have done the census? Is that a sin for us? Um, we don't know. Uh, we don't know why the census, we don't know really, we're not told what the problem is. There's an implication here. There's two reasons why you take a census in ancient times. One was for the government to know how much they can tax people. Uh, and so you see a census taken for tax purposes at the beginning of the Gospels. Um, but it's also to find out how big your army was. Because if you're getting potentially attacked from another nation, good to know how many soldiers you've got to fight back. Great for every other nation. But Israel was told, in fact, even David himself writes, that they weren't to trust in, uh, they were to trust in how big your army was, they were to trust in God. So David writes in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. So it might be that the sin is uh, him not trusting God to try to find out the enemy. But honestly, we just don't know. So when I start this passage, I'm like, I've got a whole bunch of questions. And one of the things that we try to do when we've got questions in Scripture is we let Scripture answer Scripture. Look first in the passage, then in the book we're reading, then look to other books of the Bible, but we try to let Scripture answer Scripture. But you know what happens sometimes? We still don't know. Sometimes we just don't know. Sometimes with God, we just don't have the answers. Sometimes with God, we can know the what's, the how's, but not the why's. That can be really frustrating. Because sometimes we want to know why, God. Why is this written in here? Why is this happening, God? Why is this happening to me? I think, you know, in one sa in 2 Samuel, it may not have been the author's intent to answer the questions. Maybe the original audience didn't ask why questions like we do. I think we're a bit trained for it in our culture. But we want to know why. Sometimes it's just really frustrating. God doesn't always tell us the whys. God doesn't always explain himself to us, does he? Wouldn't it be nice if he did? Maybe you're like me, you've got a list of why questions when you get to heaven. Why God? Because I don't understand and I want to know. It's really hard. It can be really debilitating sometimes to not always know why. So we don't always know why when we've got questions. But what we can do is lean, even if we don't know why, we can lean into God's character. Um, David, who wrote the Psalms, many of the Psalms also writes 
Uh, in Psalm 145, verse 17, we see that the Lord is righteous in all his ways. He's faithful in all he does. We can't always know the why with God, but we can trust that he's righteous. He's good and he's faithful. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to be faithful to who he is. Doesn't explain the why, but what we can do is trust in God. That's the invitation. So I start this morning going, we've got questions. There's why. Then as we read through the passage, we're going to see three big things. Sin, judgment, and God's mercy. This is what we do know. This is what we can see. We see that Israel has sinned. There is sin. And David, uh, getting this census, David has sinned too. Have you eaten KFC? Have you ever been like, oh, I just want the dirty kernel? I don't know if I've used this illustration before because it... I still haven't learned my lesson if I have used this illustration before. But it just tastes good and it smells good. And you're like, I shouldn't do it. And then you do it. And that first bite is amazing. And then it hits your tummy. And then you're like, oh, why have I done that? I'm never doing that again. (laughs) Ever. And then what happens? You do it again. Um, I think sin is a bit like this because I want to hear look what happens to David as soon as uh, Joab has gone around it's taken him 10 months to do this this uh, census but as soon as he's done it David was conscience stricken he's had that oh what have I done moment David was conscience stricken after he'd counted the fighting men he said to the Lord I've sinned greatly in what I've done Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. Again, it's probably just me. I don't know if you've ever had in mind to to do something you know you shouldn't do, you know is against the Lord, and you justify it, and you think about it, and you'll... Is it just me? Just me. You guys wouldn't do that. And you line yourself up for it and it's going to be awesome and you just sort of put God over there because I'm going to go do this thing. And as soon as you do it, you have that dirty kernel moment, don't you? Oh, why have I... You have this conscious... This is what's happened to David. Maybe it's not like David where you've you've done it. You haven't even realised. You haven't even realised the sin, but all of a sudden you get that conscience-stricken conviction. What have I done? What have I done? And we see the sin that David has done by sending that census. David sins. But what is David's response? He's repentant. What's the first thing he does? This is, this is something we can learn from. He's conscience stricken and he goes straight to the Lord. And you see his repentance, it goes straight to the Lord and he confesses. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Take away the guilt of your servant. Unlike previous examples, you know, like, uh, you know, we've seen, um, he doesn't have someone like Nathan the prophet turning up and going, 
you haven't even realized just let me tell you what we're seeing here is david towards the end of the book actually realizing his own sin he's conscious stricken on himself and we're seeing a repentant david he's realized his sin and he's confessed it now as i said i'm the only one who sins here so this is irrelevant to everyone else but if there's anyone else who sins here um here's the encouragement when we sin i encourage us confess it be like david sometimes you just got to sit down and talk it out i like doing it out loud that helps me just sit down and say god i have screwed up here i have messed up i need to come and chat to you about this confess it uh i really encourage to sometimes it's really helpful if you have someone you trust that you can just confess your sins to not to anybody but to the right person maybe it's your partner if you've got one maybe it's not sometimes it maybe if it's another guy or another girl or something but who is someone you can trust and just to go I've sinned I've done something wrong because you know what happens if we hold stuff to ourselves we might know God can forgive us we might know but sometimes we need to hear it and we don't say it out loud ourselves Satan can just be like there's that inward guilt that keeps on going no 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 sometimes we need to hear out loud someone saying yep you've stuffed up but God's forgiven you here's a verse sometimes we actually need to say it out loud be the most healing thing um this uh our reading today that happens to be this is so wonderful and just speaks to this it was 1 john 1 8 that john read for us um john thompson that is not um but it was from john listen to what it says if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves the truth's not in us but if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness that's what the lord jesus has done so i think there's an encouragement for us yes we sin but let us keep on confessing our sin to each other so we see this sin in this passage and we see judgment as well because david's confessed but but we also see judgment judgment happens before david verse 11 before david got up the next morning the word of the lord came to gather the prophet david's seer go and tell david this is what the lord says so he comes and turns up um, i'm giving you three options choose one of them for me to carry out against you here's another question this is the only time that i know in scripture that someone gets to choose the punishment for their sin don't ask again don't know why not, we're just not told but here it is i'm giving you three options choose one of them so gad went to david and said to him here's your three options you can have three years of famine or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you or three days of plague in your land think it over decide how i should answer the one who sent me now we don't know what the sin was that incited the lord's anger against israel it must have been pretty huge because these are pretty full tilt full-on options for david we don't know what it was but they must be massive 
And it's fascinating, as I said, that God involves David in the judgment. Which would you choose? It's not great either way, is it? We're not told explicitly what David uh, chooses. Uh, and, and we'll come to, to how that plays out, these next verses. But we see here that judgment has to follow sin. God is not a God who lets sin go. If there's sin, it's got to be dealt with. We're really good at human, as humans. We can just like shove things in the little carpet box here and no one will just throw it in there. Put our rubbish in there. No one will notice. No one will see. God isn't like that. And I thank God. I'm glad God's not like that. He deals with sin. If we've been, as we've been going through 2 Samuel, you've seen that. You've seen that You know, when David sends with Bathsheba, God sends Nathan the prophet to go and convict David. You know, last week we saw uh, against the Gibeonites, there was an issue uh, against the Gibeonites. God brings famine on the land. David's not even sure why. He has to go and inquire of the Lord and find out what the issue is and do a bunch of things to, to, um, to, to deal with God's judgment. And again, we see it here. Here is a God that needs to deal with sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. God isn't like that. Sin has consequences. It has to be dealt with by a holy God. Uh, and I'll show this verse, I know um, Robin showed this verse last week, but Romans 6.23, a verse that's so familiar, what does it say? For the wages of sin is death. Um, if I work a job, if I work at McDonald's or somewhere, I deserve a wage. I do, you know, my eight hours, I get a, a wage. When we sin, which we all do, what's the wage we deserve? It's judgment. And that, it's death. That's the punishment we deserve for sin. We all sin. We all deserve that. There's judgment. God doesn't stop. Judgment must happen. Sin has to be dealt with. There's sin. There's judgment. But there's also mercy. Have a look. Verse 14. David says to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. David says, I don't know which of these three options to choose. I've no idea. So, but I know that if I fall into human hands, if I let you know that option of the enemies pursuing me, I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe the worst. My only choice is to fall into God's hands. He's banking on God's mercy rather than entrusting himself to others he knows that mankind isn't always so kind and it's not consistent but he knows what doesn't change is God's character and he knows that God is compassionate and merciful uh, coming back to Psalm 145 he uh, it says this in the Psalms the Lord is gracious and compassionate David knows this, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. Though God is a holy God and must deal with judgment, he also knows God is a merciful God. 
And so David says, that's where I'm going to put my trust. That's where I want, I'm going to let you uh, put my hands in you, Lord, because at least with you, there's some hope of mercy. And so what happens in uh, verse 15 and 16? So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 people uh, are impacted and died. But when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relenting, relented sorry, concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough with to withdraw your hand. What do we see? God's judgment comes forward. He doesn't hold back. But before it's up, he relents. Before the judgment's up, he relents. It's not taking away from God's judgment, but you see that even the Lord shows mercy. When we entrust ourselves to others, we don't know what we're going to get because humans are humans. David puts his trust in the Lord because he knows God is consistent. God is merciful. It challenges me. Who are we entrusting ourselves to? In, you know, who are we entrusting ourselves? We're entrusting ourselves to the Lord in all of our life. God isn't like that boss who you know, might turn up moody one day. You never know how it's going to be and makes decisions you know, based on are they having a good day or not. God's consistent in character. So David knows he can bank on trusting in the Lord, who's going to be righteous in all his ways, but who also has compassion, slow to anger, rich in love. So we see there's sin in this passage, there's judgment, there's mercy from God, but there's also more to this story. Maybe there's this last little section about Aruna the Jebusite, it's almost like one of those Marvel movies with the extra little bit on the end of the credits that you're like, What's, you know, it sort of points us. It's this fascinating little thing. It concludes with this, and I find this fascinating. There's so much in this too, we're not going to get to all of it. But the book of Samuel concludes with a story about the angel on the threshing floor. Verse 17 is definitely a good to look at because here's David repenting. Again, when David saw the angel of the Lord who was striking down the people, he says to the Lord, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. See, he's recognizing who he is. But these are sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and on my family. David's recognized that he's become the shepherd that wants to take away the wrath of God for his people. He wants to, he can't completely, he prays for them, but he can't take it away. But he's recognized that's the shepherd he wants to be. You see this growth in him. And he goes on and God commands that David then goes and buys the threshing floor from Aruna the Jebusite. Uh, the threshing floor, by the way, is where uh, they would uh, beat out the wheat um, and to separate the wheat from the husk is my understanding and um, you sort of throw it's like a big stone floor you throw it up and then it will be separated out and so if you're wondering what a threshing floor is that's my brief little summary of what a threshing floor is so and God commands David go and buy this place that the angel of the Lord 
relented. And you see this, uh, I'm told, typical Middle Eastern ancient Israelite haggling um, for the price there where the guy offers, but David insists, I have to pay for it. As the king here, this is my, I'm taking responsibility as the chief shepherd, I insist on paying the price. And there, uh, in verse 24, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And there we read that David builds this altar to the Lord. In the final verse of 2 Samuel, David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. There's so much there that we can get into. You might have questions about an angel and how was that working and did save David's seed? More questions I can't answer. Scripture doesn't answer. But what I find fascinating about this little section is one of the emphasis it has on the location. It keeps on talking about this threshing floor. Why is that important? In the parallel passage... Uh, in 2 Chronicles 3, 1, we're giving it a bit more information about the significance of this threshing floor. Uh, and I'll read that for you. Uh, then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Solomon, David's son, we, we looked forward to him a few weeks ago when we talked about the promises. Uh, he, Solomon, David's son, builds the temple that was promised to David, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, the palace provided by David. So we've seen this story of David, his sin, it playing out, but the very place that the Lord relented, that David was told to go build an altar, that is the very place that the temple of the Lord, that the generations to come in the kingdom of Israel would now go and worship the Lord. It's an, I've, I've really, uh, that really warms my heart to go, look how God is at work, even in this sin, look at what God is doing to bring his people uh, to a place of worship. Um, what also sticks out for me is, uh, it's named in that 2 Chronicles passage as Mount Moriah. Do you know what else happened on Mount Moriah? Does anyone else know what happened? Mount Moriah gets mentioned back in Genesis as the place where Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. But at the last minute, the Lord provided a lamb in its place. Again, a place where the Lord is worshipped. What is the significance of that? Well, I come back to verse 25. Look again. This is the place that David then... Uh, built an altar to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. The same place where Abraham sacrificed uh, the God provide the offering. The same place where now God's people uh, will set up the temple uh, to God. Here is David, God's shepherd, acting to save his people from God's wrath. David can pray. He's got that priestly role, praying for people. But David can't stop the plague of God's judgment. He couldn't prevent either that, that even though the temple here gets set up, he can't prevent the nation of Israel ultimately failing. 
But the thing I love about this location is just nearby, on a hill close by, another event will take place. Another event will take place that we're going to celebrate next week for another king. Another shepherd will come and die on a cross for his people. As we look back through 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, I think this chapter actually does bring to conclusion a few things for us. It brings to conclusion uh, what we can learn a bit about David. He's grown. As we said, I think he's become the repentant king. He's become the shepherd that wants to take the wrath of God for God's people. He can't completely, but he wants to. So in many ways, he is this ideal king. He recognizes that God is the true king. He banks on God's mercy. Uh, He insists on paying the cost for worship. So in many ways, he's, he's God's king. But in many ways, he falls so short. I think at the end of this book, we get a sense of David's great. But he still is not completely adequate. He's not adequate to fully be the king that the world needs. He still has his own sin sin to deal with. We've seen that again and again. He can't fully protect God's people. He can't fully pay the cost of worship. He's inadequate to save his people from the enemies, from themselves, from God's wrath. But I love the end as we look towards David setting up the temple. It's pointing for us towards this king to come. This king who will come. David brought Israel's kingdom into being. David was the right king for Israel. But it points to a right king, a king who will bring in God's kingdom. It's the King Jesus. And this king to come, he is our Lord. He is the one we can come to. He is the one we can come to when we have questions and we ask why and it just doesn't make sense. He's the one we can come to. It's the Lord Jesus that when we have sin, when we're struggling with our sin, that we can confess to. That he has died for our sin. When we struggle with judgment, he's the one who took the judgment for us. When we need mercy, he's the one we can get on our knees and come to. To me, this passage points towards the ultimate priest and king. It's the Lord Jesus. And he's the one that we're going to celebrate next Friday. I want to encourage us to keep on coming to this Lord Jesus. We're going to celebrate him next Friday. We have a great opportunity with Easter coming along to have conversations with our friends. Ask them what they think about Jesus. We have a great opportunity to bring people to church. Great. It's the best chance we're going to get out all year to come to church. We're going to have heaps of visitors here. Pray for them. Bring your friends. Bring your workmates. Come next week and reflect on this king that is to come. Let me pray. Father, we conclude to some, we conclude our series in crowns. Father, we thank you so much that we can come before you, even if we've seen with so many questions. 
Father, we don't always know the answers why. But may we come to you with our questions. May we come to you with our sin. May we look to you who took the judgment for us. And may we come to you recognizing you for who you are. You are a God that needs to take care of the judgment for sin, but you are a merciful God as well. And that's who we surrender ourselves to. Father, we look back at David and we look forward and we look to you. You are the king. We surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.